Okay. Uh, so I think, are you lacking a copy of the... Oh, no, I have that. Okay. Uh, let's, let's turn to the... Let's turn to uh, page three, and I'm going to recap a little bit of last week's lesson. God's wrath in the Bible. Uh, last week, we spent the entire time on Exodus 32 to 34, and we talked about how Moses, uh, how God asked Moses to let him alone so he can get angry, and I pointed out that that's very odd. Uh, why would anything stop God from getting angry? Why would Moses standing there stop God from getting angry or prevent him from getting angry? And we, I pointed out that possibly this is an angry God motif. That is, it's a parody of an angry God motif. And that therefore, God isn't really angry, but he's testing Moses to see what Moses will do if Moses will say, sure, make, uh, kill all those people and make of me a great nation, or whether he will argue for God's reputation. And Moses takes it as a, an opportunity to argue with God, uh, to preserve his reputation. So, so I like to think of this passage as an angry God, as a, as a parody of an angry God motif. Because that motif exists in Mesopotamia and in uh, Canaanite texts quite broadly and quite uh, readily. Not so much in Egypt. Egypt uh, doesn't have a lot on angry gods. But uh, Mesopotamia is, is full of angry gods. So that's one point we made. Later, God, Moses asked to see God's glory, and God makes all his goodness pass before him. And the ironic thing about that passage is that God says to Moses, uh, no one can see my face and live. You can't see my face. You can only see my backside. And I pointed out that in ancient Near Eastern perception, to see the face of a king, or anybody for that matter, was to be in their favor. And to see only their backside is to see their wrath side. So this is a totally ironic twist from the ancient Near East who would perceive that the, it, seeing the backside of the king would mean death. If the king turned his face away, it would mean death. Versus if they saw his face, they would mean his favor. In the, in what God says here is the opposite. Is that when you see his face, you can't bear it and it will consume you. So what does that mean? Well, what we came to conclude is that because God's, we are out of harmony with God's love, and God's face represents his love in its fullness, we can't, we can't see his face and live. His love would actually be a consuming fire that would consume us because it's life-giving and we're in the process of dying. And so it's a natural consequence so that we aren't destroyed by his wrath except that as he turns away and leaves us to the consequences of our choice, we do suffer the consequences. But it's, it's not his wrath directly that is, is the consuming fire. It is his face of love, <clears throat> which is the opposite of, of how ancient Near Eastern minds would read that. Then the final thing was we looked at God's a statement of his name. And in that statement, and I'm getting my Bible out here, in that statement of his name, he describes himself as Yahweh, Yahweh, which is gracious. And I'm, look, at, look at Exodus 34. We'll review this very briefly before we jump into today's uh, Exodus 34, verse, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. What is really in the Hebrew is Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh. And I pointed out last week that Yahweh is a term that is, is built on the form of the verb to be. Uh, and, and it means self-existent one, I think. 
but it is the one who is. I am who I am. You remember God revealed himself to Moses that way at the burning bush. Uh, I am who I am. Uh, it really proclaims God at his heart, at his character. And what goes, what follows this, uh, is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Note where anger is used here. A slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's all about love until you get to the end. And what is this visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children? And and what we concluded last week is that this visiting means to allow the consequences of a person's choice to to go to only two generations before visiting, uh, before the iniquities are no longer visited. Uh, Angel, would you pass the microphone down to Jonathan, please? So in my cellular and molecular biology class yesterday, which Christina knows about, um, our professor was talking about epigenetics and, and, how, and how your choices and your experiences can affect the... The, the the genes you express, which genes you express. And so it's interesting because it seems to go to the third and fourth generations, the, the the effects of, you know, your epigenetics on your children, your grandchildren and things. Think what would happen if God didn't put that default in. And, it would be and even more messed up than... We would, be, we would have a load of, of genes. In fact, my brother has been reading a lot about epigenetics, I think, and and he suggested that that we are mostly comprised of all the mutations <laughs> that have have been propagated because of choices we've made from generation to generation. We are we are just comprised of this. What is really us is a very small part of our DNA, uh, and so. So think what we're, where we would be if God didn't put this default in. And I think I, I was just going to bring up epigenetics as an illustration of, of what is said here. Uh, but you did it better than I would do since I'm not a science major and never was. <laughs> uh, so visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children is not arbitrary. It is not God doing it. And I think the reason the wording is the way it is is to stress that. Now, uh, last week I, I pointed out that in Akkadian, it never means to punish. This word, pakadu, never means to punish. It means to administer. Um, in Hebrew, it, it really means to muster up, to, um, to oversee, uh, to put controls in. And that's what I see is happening here in this verse. So where is God's wrath in this description of his character? He's slow to anger. That's the closest you get to, to God being having wrath as part of his nature. And this is very important to nail down before we talk about Mesopotamian wrath. Because it's important to recognize that in all the statements of self-disclosure by God about who he is and his character, he never says, I'm fierce, I'm angry. Never. He says it regarding certain things that are coming to Israel. He says it regarding things that are about to happen, such as in the prophet Jeremiah, prophet Ezekiel. But that is tied to acts that are going to happen that are not his. They're done by the Babylonians. And, and we're going to get to that. So I wanted to establish these points. Uh, this is what we talked about last week. And one of the conclusions we made is that, because I want to say this before we jump into some other passages, hermeneutically, that is how we read the Bible, if we read it as a human book, then it looks like God is angry all the time in the Old Testament. But if we if we read it through divine inspiration as an inspired book, then we can we can recognize that one text can be the key to use to unlock the problems of the other texts. In other words, we have definitive statements, and we need to keep those definitive statements as the canopy under which we read all the other ones. 
Okay, let's jump into today's exercise. If you look at uh, page three of the handout, Deuteronomy 31.17, we come to next. We're not going to read all these uh, texts. But this one is particularly helpful. By the way, the instructive passages means that these are helpful texts mm-hmm. that give us contextual clues. Uh, so 31.17. And why don't you read, Christina, the two verses, if you could get the mic. My anger will be kindled against them in that day. I will forsake them and hide my face from them. They will become easy prey, and many terrible troubles will come upon them. In that day, they will say... Have not these troubles come upon us because our God is not in our midst? On that day I will surely hide my face on account of all the evil they have done by turning to other gods. So this is another hide your face kind of text, isn't it? So my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them. That is, if if we cut ourselves off from God, he's... He's not going to force himself on us. So I feel like it's kind of a parent with a child where it's like the, the, you know, the child does something wrong and the parent just gets to the point where it's like, all right, if you're going to do that, I'm just going to look the other way and you're going to learn your lesson. So it's not really him showing him like I'm angry at you, but it's just, you know what, you got to learn. So here, learn. Do you want to say something, Adam? You look you look ready. <laughs> so um, let's look at the, uh, Joshua twenty three six, and this will be a little more difficult, but I think contextually we can find it. Um, oh, sixteen. Sorry, I thought something was wrong when I looked at verse six. Uh, look at verses fifteen and sixteen, and, and Adam, why don't you read? It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you off from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from from off the good land which he has given you. Okay, so we need to look at the context of this. Look at... He, he tells them in verse 5 that he's going to push back the nations from them. Not They're not to mix with them. They're to cling to the Lord. And that if they do that, they will be able to put to flight a thousand. Uh, because since it is the Lord who fights for you, notice the idea still is displacement here. But he says, for if you turn back, verse 12, and cling to the remnant of these nations and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations out before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good land. Who's going to be, who, who is going to do the, the, be the problem for Israel? Is it God or is it something else? Okay, if you won't if you won't stand up to these people and not submit to their gods, then 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 I won't drive them out before you. In other words, um, you don't want them driven out. I won't drive them out. I will give you what you want. You know, there's there's something psychological that happens to our human minds. I I just want to pause to mention this because I I think I know it happens to me when we read these seemingly harsh passages it does something psychologically to us to the point where we lose the context we lose the meaning we lose because because it feels angry it feels hostile it feels this way and our feelings uh, our fears are roused and our fears shut down our ability to see the context and to see the meaning uh, I just want to pause that because it's something we have to fight against because we are by nature children of wrath. That's that's right out of Romans. By by that I mean we are very easily cowed by anger. 
and we are very easily angered ourselves. So we have that we are by children by nature children of wrath. Okay, yeah, uh, get the microphone. Could it be that the reason why we're so angry is because we're frustrated that we see our sinful nature and we can't get rid of it ourselves? Like we have to let God, like we have to let it go. And that's so hard as humans to let somebody else control us because we want control, because we feel powerful. And, and, and that could stem from a misunderstanding of God who doesn't control us but who influences us and surrounds us with his presence. And in that presence... We become our truest selves. But if we're going to try to fight our way out of this, we're going to just be worse it, it, because it's self-defeating. And it's very hard to understand that. I was going to mention something about like being, it being psychological. Um, it's uh, I lost my train of thought. Um, well, it's like verse 16. Um, it's like the Lord will be very angry with you and you will disappear quickly from the land, the good land which he gave you. It's just, um, it's like, like as you were saying, yeah, fear kind of shuts us down a little bit to that, to the kind of the idea of it. So instead of seeing it as it really is, we give it a different idea, which leads me um, to like, to just now thinking about how, um, like most, most other civilizations had these deities and all these other gods. And it's just kind of like could it could it have been psychological where it's just like people start fearing their their own anger their own anger their own emotions, and it's just like a kid who kind of it's kind of like it's gonna sound weird but like kind of like a like a religious poltergeist so to say they develop their own emotions into a god and say well there's a god of the sun there's a god of this and but it's just really like a projection of somebody's emotion that they create. I think so. I think I think fear darkens the mind and and makes it difficult to to see God clearly. I I think you you've well expressed uh, what very possibly happened in the ancient Near East. Like if you notice like I I like Greek mythology and so I read a lot about it and if you notice um all the gods have um human characteristics. They all, you know, get really angry and they have um, you know, liaisons with like other humans and like all these things and it's just they're all human characteristics. They're n- none of them are perfect. No. No, they're very self-centered, they're very angry, uh, angry and, and very um chaotic. Chaotic. Yeah. They're they very chaotic. They fight among themselves and with other people and just create more chaos when they should be in control. Well, anger is uh, anger is a loss of control. Isn't yes. It? When, you can't when we get angry, we're, we lose control. We don't gain it. Uh, which means that if God is an in-control God, that is not he's not controlling, but he's in charge and he's... He oversees it, and he, out of his calm and vast eternity, he orders that which he sees best, to quote a favorite author. If he's that kind of a God, he can't be getting angry like we get angry. It just, it, the anger can't be the same. And, and that's what we've got to keep in mind. It doesn't say here, and I, the, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will kill you quickly. <laughs> but we tend to read that into it, doesn't it? it and you will perish quickly. From off the land. Okay. Uh. And maybe too that we relate um, anger with death because we see all these nations that died because of, you know, God's wrath. And I've discussed this with my dad. Um, he's a pastor. And I'm like, Dad, you know, why did why did all these people get killed? You know, it's it seems like so, like, violent. And um, we were talking about it. And I think he mentioned that all these nations had the opportunity to be saved because of Israel. Israel was supposed to be the light and was to show all these nations around them who God was. But because they didn't do their job, all these nations, you know, were like lost. Of course, they always had the opportunity to come to God, you know, like Ruth and all those other examples. But the fact that Israel didn't do its job to its fullest capability hindered that. You know, I have often pointed out to my students in Kings and Conquests that um, given that ancient near East, Canaanite homes or Canaanite cities probably were comprised of very, very much 
people who were related to one another. In other words, everybody in the town was related to almost everybody else in the town. Uh, You take the story of, of Jericho. Rahab asked to save her family. And they say, well, you got to bring them into your house. Well, she's an innkeeper, which is very likely in the story. It doesn't say she was, but she is a prostitute. She keeps travelers. Um, and it's, it's very likely she's an innkeeper because the two often went together. If she has a, that big a house, she could house practically the whole town. She could claim them all as her family. So the whole town of Jericho could have been saved if they had chosen differently. Hmm. Um, so so along, along your point, but I, I would like to enlarge that even further. God's, if, you, if you take the, the hermeneutic device that I have come to conclude, which is one Jesus used, it's how he interpreted the Old Testament, that God's preferred voice is a minor voice in the Old Testament, and his major voice of his adapted will to the will of the people is, is a major voice. God's minor voice in Exodus 23 suggests that God never intended Israel fight their way into Canaan. He never intended the people be slaughtered. He wanted to displace them, to drive them out. Uh, that was his preferred will. But because Israel heard, let's go up and fight, they couldn't imagine God taking care of the problem. Back to your point. Uh, they took up arms against the people. And so God worked with them in that way. All right, let's go to 1 Samuel 24.1. This is very instructive in terms of how we read the Bible. And and by the way, while you're turning there, you know, this is historic Adventism to read the Bible this way. Because what do we do with the words forever and ever? And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Do we believe in an ever-burning hell as Adventists? Why not? How do, how do we get around that? doesn't seem in the character of a loving God. Okay. We, we rule it out because of the character of a loving God, but what, what key text do we go to in the Bible? There's one right before Je- uh, Revelation, Jude uh, 7, I believe it is. It says that Sodom and Gomorrah suffered, un- underwent the punishment, eternal punishment, eternal fire. So, I think that what we have is a punishment here that is eternal, and so we use that text and we say, see, Sodom and Gomorrah are not still burning. Therefore, we have forever and ever is not still forever and ever. You see how we use one text to unlock and be the key for another text. That's how we how we do our our whole study of the Bible. All right. Uh let's go to 1 Samuel 24. Again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying go number Israel and Judah. Second Samuel. I'm sorry. It says First Samuel. It should be Second Samuel. Okay. So, um, so what we have is God tempts David to number Israel. He numbers Israel, and God says, "Wrong. I'm going to punish you." So here's here's the analogy. What would we say about a parent who got angry with their child, set the child up to disobey them, and then punish the child? Crazy. Stop. <laughs> Abusive? Yeah. yeah. Like, in a joking way, it's like, yeah, I do agree with you guys. But then it's like, it also depends on on what exactly is being set up. Like, for example, I, I, I got a puppy in September. And, um, and in, our, in our yard, we had um, some chickens. And one of them wasn't a very nice chicken. And my dog doesn't like birds. So it would chase after them. And I would tell him, don't do it. You know, stop, sit, you know, don't go. And he would want to. Well, to get him to stop, I put him in the chicken hen. 
and he got beat up by the chicken. So now he leaves the chickens alone, and now he just walks around the yard, and you know. Okay, so so you're saying you're reading into the story that really God didn't incite David to number Israel, um, and and that's by the way. Now go to um, first First Chronicles twenty one, and um, who's willing to read that verse, Tara? Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take his census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. Who incited David to number Israel now? This is the same story. It's it's the Satan. It's actually not here the Satan, it's just Satan. So... What possibly we have is a progression of understanding within the Bible. See, the chronicler had a problem with God inciting David to number Israel and then punishing him for it. That didn't seem like just theology. And so the chroniclers decided it was Satan who incited David to number Israel. And he put that in. Which which means that we should recognize that no one passage of Scripture has the full truth about God. That's why we need the whole Bible to get the whole truth. Back before the exile, when uh, the Israelites saw that God was responsible for everything, God, they had no choice but to think that God tempted David or incited David to number Israel. But after the exile, they had begun to think this through and began to realize that there was not just God up there and them, but there was a whole other dimension that we have come to call the great controversy that is going on. And what allowed them to do that, I think, was contact with the Persians, uh, who did have a very strong dualism, uh, a, a good God and a very evil uh, not deity, but evil uh, individual. Okay, First um, Samuel twenty-eight, eighteen. This is this is a, a difficult passage. God tells Saul he is to clean out the Amalekites. He is to uh, destroy everybody. He is to do what is called kerem, which is uh, devote everything to destruction. And it sounds, it sounds very fierce, but remember this is now God's major voice operating in a context where people are fighting their way through Canaan. They, they don't believe that they should just let God drive them out. So first, uh, first Samuel 28:18, it says Saul did not carry out God's fierce anger against the, the Amalekites. Well, how do you deal with that? It's almost like God's fierce anger is giving people up to death, as it were. And and because you have this very complicated situation now where Israel is determined to fight, it comes out that God's fierce anger is executed by Saul, or supposed to be executed by Saul. We're going to come to a, a little different, when, at the end of this study, we're going to come to a little different explanation for divine anger uh, that will help fit with this passage. I'll just give you a little peephole into it. Where God seems to be the angriest and most needing appeasement, just where, where God's anger is fiercest in the Bible has to do with monarchical power, has to do with political power has to do with a construct of, of power. And there's a direct correlation in the ancient Near East between anger and power. We'll come, we'll come full circle to that before the end of the study. So, moving on quickly. Uh, Ezra 8.22. Uh, let's try that one. And uh, Jonathan, why don't you read, or, or do you not have... A Bible. Verse 22 is all you need to read. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road, because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. 
but great is his anger against all who forsake him. Great is his anger toward all who forsake him. What does God do when he gets angry? If we use the other key texts, the other places in the Bible, such as um, when God gets angry with Moses, he lets Moses have his own way. Basically, God lets them have his own, their own way. They forsake him, and they suffer the consequences of forsaking him. Nehemiah 13:18. If you go to back to 15, Carolina, why don't you read um, verses 15 to 18? In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them onto donkeys, along with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and bringing them to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them on the day that they sold these provisions. The people from Tyre who lived there were bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise and were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem of all places. So I registered a complaint with the nobles of Judah, saying to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Isn't this the way your ancestors acted, causing our God to bring on them, on this city, all this misfortune? And now you are causing even more wrath on Israel, profaning the Sabbath like this. Okay. Bringing wrath. This is now, uh, it's inferred that it's God's wrath, but it's almost like wrath is an action or something that happens, an event. And who, who brought the misfortune on the city of Jerusalem before Nehemiah's time? Remember historically? No, it was Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that came down and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So if it, what we see working out here, the wording suggests that God is doing it. But the truth is people are forsaking him for other gods. He has to withdraw and the Babylonians come and destroy the city. And so Nehemiah is saying, you're bringing more wrath down on us, meaning more disaster will come. So wrath here is almost a synonym for disaster. Is forsaking God then equal to death? It certainly leads to death. Like in a sense, because you can come back, right? You can, or no? Well, if you forsake, if you forsake God completely, He honors that choice, and basically a person cuts himself off from His protection and, and from life uh, when that happens. If there's nothing more he can do for them, I think as long as there's some way he think he believes he can win them back, like he gives you he enough will. opportunity to do yes. so, to be with him, yeah. he will he will preserve you, try attempting to win you back. But when there's nothing more he can do, then forsaking him means he lets you go. To that. Um, it sounds like in this case that what they're doing by forsaking God is disobeying him so maybe they're like they're breaking the covenant agreement so which then implies that god they want god to go yeah is, is that what's happening yes. here yes so it's not like trading on the sabbath brings direct consequences but it's when god goes away from them but by 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 flaunting the sabbath they really do flaunt yahweh because this the sabbath represents yahweh in a singular way that is not true of any other ancient Near Eastern god. And at the top of the mountain we're climbing is the Sabbath. Mm. This is where this whole study is going to end up. I haven't worked out all the details, but I'm in the process of working it out right now. So, yeah, there's a lot more. Okay, so I'm going to run briefly through some of these now. Psalm 27 talks about God's anger is turning someone away, casting someone off, forsaking someone. And in Psalm 59, we have to realize that some of these expressions about God's anger in the Psalms are just honest prayers, and that's how they perceive God. So uh, it's human to want God to consume my enemies in, in his wrath. You know, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> These are what we call imprecatory psalms, or imprecatory psalms, uh, psalms, uh, asking God to show vengeance on his enemies. And Psalm 76, let's look at that one because I I want to I'm curious to see what your versions have. And I have two verses there. Uh it's either 10 or 11 in the English. Hebrew uh, verses are different. 
And that's why I have a little difference there. Psalm 76.10. What do you, what do your versions have? Uh, it says, certainly your anger judgment, your angry judgment upon men will bring you praise. You will reveal your anger in full measure. That's an interesting interpretation. Um, what what do does anybody have a different reading of the text? I have a NASB and it says, "For the wrath of man shall praise you." And what's the next line? With a remnant of wrath, you will gird yourself. Okay, that's closer to the Hebrew. Okay, your version is extremely interpretive. It's interpreting the wrath of man to be God's wrath against man. Her version? Yeah. Okay. Her version. Oh, I'm sorry. His. His. Your version. Angel's version. So, it's really the wrath of men shall praise you, and the remnant of wrath you will wear like a belt. Uh, it's not necessarily God's wrath. That you you have to read that into the text to to get there. Uh, and then look at Psalm. Don't look it up, but uh, Psalm ninety-five, uh, eleven. If they will not go into his rest, that is the promised land. What else could he do but give them what they chose? So anger again is giving people what they choose. And no, read the if you read the entire Psalm, Psalm one hundred two. Uh, this is the feelings and perceptions of the psalmist. This is how it feels to him: is that God is angry and doing all these things, and. Proverbs 22.14 and um, I'm going to go ahead and read that to save time the mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit that's talking about hanging out with prostitutes Okay, he with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it so does God make get angry at people and say I'm going to make you go do prostitution you're going to cohabit with a prostitute is that what's going on? I mean, that's how it sounds. If God gets angry at you, you're going to have sex with a prostitute. It can't be. See, this is this is where we do have to question the wording and get behind it. It seems that a person who, who is stubbornly insisting on going with a prostitute, God lets go and he lets them do it. And that's his anger. It, this works best uh, if we understand anger in that way. Okay, so Isaiah 12.1. Let's look that one up. This is a common phrase in the Bible. Uh, your anger turned away, though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Uh, Psalms often pray, please turn away your anger from me. And what leads them to pray that is that they're suffering something. They perceive God is angry and they say, turn away your anger. And, um, it, what I have come to conclude in the Bible is that the, the biblical writers understood that when God got angry, he was in control. This was not flying off into a rage. This was not losing control, but God was in control. And his anger was something he controlled himself. He was not a victim of his own anger like we tend to be. He controlled it so he could turn it away, he could bring it back, which indicates that it's not an emotion with God. It's a state of conditions where the people make choices, and God honors those choices. It, it's a, a state. Instead of being, uh, he, God is not a victim of his of, of anger, and it's, instead of being an emotion, it's a state of conditions that exist with people who, who don't want him, who forsake him, who turn away from him, and so he honors their choice. And similarly, Isaiah 49, defer and restrain anger. And what I see that is, is he's restraining the consequences, giving people more time. 
Now, with all of the prophets, and, and we have a whole bunch of prophets here, uh, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 33, Lamentations 2, 4, Ezekiel 5, 13, Hosea 11, 9, Hosea 14, 14 4, and Amos 1, 11. All in the prophets, God's anger represents the calamities that befall Israel and Judah for forsaking God and the nations, other nations come up against them and wipe them out, take them captive, whatever. Those are, that is God's anger. You see? And it's not a direct thing God does. It's not Him flying off the handle in a rage. It is simply the conditions. God's wrath is, are, relates to the conditions brought on by people because Israel or Judah forfeited God's protection. Let's look at Hosea 11:9, and then we'll quit for today. This is maybe not a good one to use, but I want to let's read the whole. Angel, would you read for us? Uh, I cannot carry out my fierce anger. I cannot totally destroy Ephraim, because I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. I will not come in wrath. Let's let's read the whole passage, uh, starting with verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I, they called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning in offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall re- not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they refuse to return to me. What else can he do? You won't come to me. I have to let you go. That's going to mean Assyria taking over. The sword will rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, though they call out to the Most High. He does not raise them up at all. They're turning away from God. God is not turning away from them. And here comes God's cry. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. I think that verse seems like a great illustration of progressive truth, maybe, you know, because he talks about leading the children out and help teaching them to walk, holding their hands, leading them step by step. So that's yeah. immediately what I thought yeah. of. Yeah. It, it doesn't really bring out the the I'm hoping to change your ideas about things, but it's the yeah. helping but it the people that. develop. Yeah. And notice notice the progression too within this passage of what is taking place. They're turning away from him. They're bent on leaving him. And God cries out, "How can I give you up? How can I let you go?" And then he says, I won't execute my burning anger. That is, I won't let you go. Because I am God and not man, a holy one in your midst, and I will come in wrath. The Hebrew there is very difficult, and some versions have, I will not come to destroy. Um, But it does seem that God's anger here is giving people up. And he's very reluctant to do it. He hates to do it. But when they insist on leaving him, there's nothing he can do. Any thoughts, comments, or questions? So, does this all mean that God doesn't get angry um, in our way of um, uh, looking at him anthropomorphically? That his anger is not anger. It's actually, like you said, just a set of conditions um um it, something something that's of his character that um lets him, 
uh, lets him work in a certain way, but it's not real anger. Is that what this means? That's how I see it. I, but I would add one component, and I think I get that from Hosea. It is his ag- agonizing grief at losing us. There is an emotional component, but it's not a rage at us. It is grief, intense emotional grief that is so intense that the closest word that could be found is it's burning compassion. And, and that becomes burning passion, and that becomes wrath, you see. In, in Hebrew, my, a number of the Hebrew words for anger are, are burning, have to do with burning and, and fire and heat and, and so on. Well, to, to me, it seems like it's, like it says his wrath, sorry, sorry. Um, it says his wrath or God's anger, but it doesn't seem to me like angry at all. Like it's just, all right, he knows, like it's like he's omnipotent. He knows the past, the present, and the future, what will happen in every scenario that could happen. And so it's just like he'll turn, he'll turn the other way, not, not in anger or anything, but it's like he leaves it to us to choose. And it's just more, more of a matter of us, of him showing us that we, we should trust him. It's like, if you're not going to trust me, this is what's going to happen if, if you trust yourselves. It's like, I know what's good for you. I know the better outcome. But if you want to try and trust yourself, go for it. But it's not going to end well for you guys. It's more of, all right, this is your lesson that needs to be learned. And I'm trying to show you a different lesson so you can get something better out of it. So you can be happy so that you can see my love through my actions and through the trust that you have in me. It's like, kind of like what he was saying, it's like anger, his anger is like an expression of his love because God is love. And the fact that we um, recoil from him and all he's trying to do is protect us and save us, that makes him frustrated because he sees that all he wants to do is like love us and we don't understand how amazing and beautiful that is because we're so sinful. That's his jealousy. Yeah. That's, that is a, an attribute of God. It's jealousy. And it comes out of a marriage covenantal construct where God wants intimacy with us, intimacy of trust. And when he can't have that, um, he, he is roused not against us but for us. And it's enormous grief, enormous concern for us, um, but it's pure and holy. Uh, this, this popular belief out there in Christianity that God's holiness is his destructive side, to me, is totally against the Bible. And you heard, you saw a text right there in Hosea where uh, God says, I'm a holy one of Israel. I will not come to destroy. I will not come in wrath. Um, I, I, I don't know how much this has to do with God's anger and uh, anger and how he works. But Psalm 4, verse 4, um, my version says, when you are disturbed, there's a foot, no, this says angry. Um, when you are angry, do not sin. Ponder on your beds and be silent. Could, could, could that have something to do with God's character and when he, and about his wrath? Because I just think of it as if, if you're angry and you act upon that, it's sinning. Does God sin? Right. No. <laughs> well, we're gonna come to a whole, page six in this handout, uh, biblical injunctions, junctions for humans not to be angry. There's a whole list. We're going to look at that. Uh, does God have a double standard? He can get angry, but we can't, you know. And and so it all has enormous implications for how we see it. I was just going to ask, like, I agree with that. There's this prevalent idea of like a justice and mercy, like is like a coexisting in God's head, and both have to be satisfied. I'm just curious, like, based on what we've read, I'm not sure I see that. So where does it come from? It comes from Latin Christianity. Like Latin, it comes from Rome. It comes from Roman perceptions of deity. 
and Romans' perceptions of justice that came into Christianity and read it into the Bible, translated the Latin Vulgate with this concept in mind. But it's not in the Septuagint, and it's not in the Hebrew Bible. Christina and I, we watched this independent film called The Record Keeper last night, which mm-hmm. is based on mm-hmm. the great controversy. Yeah, John, oh, John, sorry. I love you, John. But no, they kept bringing up this like <laughs> this concept of of like the law being like this thing like even above God, and that that struck me as kind of like forensical ish. Yes. And like, yes. Well, what about that? Where does that come forensic. from? Like this this law that even God has to follow. Like where did that come from? He is the law. He is the law. He is love. The law is love. Yeah. No, this this whole the whole forensic model, it comes from Roman into Christianity, and the Romans got it from the Greeks, and the Greeks got it from the Babylonians and Northwest Semitic people. It historically can be traced, I believe, to Babylon. And that's why I'm taking you to Babylon, because that's the origins of the whole legal model. That's that. At the end of, of these pages, there is a section, Divine Anger in Babylon. We'll be spending some time with that. Because once you see it in in Babylon, if you need an extra copy, okay. Once we see that in Babylon, I think it'll clarify the Bible even more. All right, let's have prayer so you can get on to church. Father, we have been blessed this morning by seeing your wrath in your word as not human anger, but as... Your intense grief at losing us, at your your pervasive willingness to let us be free to make choices and, and to receive those choices, to have those choices, you will not interfere with them. You will not force yourself on us. We thank you that you are this kind of God. We pray that in the days ahead we may continue to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.